Usually at this point in our service, we pass Christ's peace, and we join with Christians who've done this for hundreds of years all over the world. But we're going to do something a little bit different during that time today. You have been given an envelope on your way in. If you do not have an envelope, would you raise your hand? If there's anyone here who doesn't have an envelope, would you raise your hand? Okay, here are the rules for the envelope. Go ahead and open your envelope up. It said, don't open it until you're told to. So open the envelope, and here are the rules. We're going to have a greeting time, speaking to one another. And what I want you to do is activate that money. So you've been given money. It's free money. Three rules. I'm going to give you a few minutes. I want you to wander around, be adventurous, speak to someone, let them know your name, and then you can keep the money or you can give it away. And you can give away any part of it that you want. Dollar, two dollars, three dollars. You can give it all away and give it all away to the same person. You can pass one dollar bill around to three different people. Just speak and then exchange or, or not. First, so first rule, decide what you want to do with the money and then do it. Secondly, you cannot refuse a gift. So if someone is going to hand you their $3, dollars you got to take their $3. Third rule is you can't reciprocate. So if someone comes up to you, gives you $2, you can't give them $2 back. So you just have to receive it and then go to the next person and do whatever. So you got it? You got a few minutes. I want you to activate that money. Do your thing, wander around, stand up and go. All right, one minute, one minute. Okay, 30 seconds, get back to your seats. All right, let's sit back down. How many of you ended up with more money than you started out with? Raise your hand. Hoarders. Okay, how, how many of you ended up with zero? Raise your hand. Really not good with money, you guys. So how was it? How was the experience of it? <laughs> how was it? Okay, little fun, great. Why was it? Those of you who enjoyed it, why did you enjoy it? Made money, okay. I'm sorry? Giving, yep, giving. Anybody else? Why did you enjoy it? I'm sorry? Got to talk to people, yes. <laughs> Ignoring that comment, Joe, Hank, why'd you enjoy it? Yeah, you could use it for anything. Yep. Anybody else? Somebody's got to meet new people? Exactly. Hand them money. Okay. You know, for me, the key, somebody said it at the 9 o'clock service. Somebody said, it wasn't our money. <laughs> right? It's easy to give away when it's not your money. Guess what? Everything we own is not ours. It all comes to us as a gift. And it should be that easy and free uh, to give away because we're just stewards of something God has deposited on us. Today we're talking about untangling our finances, and we're going to look at a crazy, awesome passage of Scripture. We did a series of messages in the fall that we called The Good Life, and we worked our way through Matthew 6, 7, and 8, which is Jesus' longest recorded sermon. It is a really epic passage of Scripture that talks about how we connect with Him and how we actually walk with Him, and it gets pretty practical at points. And we went through it passage by passage, but we skipped this one passage because I knew that we were going to be doing today. 
And we teased out this passage for the current series of conversations that we're having. We're talking about untangling our lives because our lives can get so tangled up and twisted and burdensome at times. And today we're going to be talking about a critical area of untanglement. Today we're going to talk about untangling our finances. So we're going to look back at Jesus' sermon in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And this is just a, an extremely practical, there's, in the middle of it, there's an illustration, which you'll get the illustration, but it also seems a little odd. How does it fit in this passage? We'll, we'll break that down. Matthew 6, 19 through 24, this is a great one. So let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. As we read Matthew 6, 19 through 24, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths or vermin destroy. And that word can also be translated rust, and I like that better where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And let's read verse 21 together. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body's full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You may be seated. Now, we're not surprised when Jesus talks about prayer or fasting or loving others or, you know, religious stuff, but we're a little surprised when he talks about money. That seems too practical or maybe too personal. Jesus knows us, however, and he knows that we have no shot at living an untangled life unless we untangle our finances. Now, our finances can get tangled in a variety of ways, and you may have gotten tangled financially in your life, but let me just list two. You may have some other ideas, but I think these may be the two primary ways we get tangled financially. One is obviously debt. Did you know that student loans in America today amount to over one trillion, trillion, with a T, trillion dollars? Some of you are shaking your head because you're contributing to that. We're offering FPU right now at Gateway, and one of the first things that we do as participants at FPU, we're filling out a financial snapshot, and we're writing down our debt load. It's not for accountability or anything. We're just adding them together to see what our kind of corporate debt load is. And again, we've got a bunch of adults doing FPU, but not everyone has done this yet. But among the less than 50 families who have filled out this financial snapshot and reported so far among the less than 50 families and individuals who have filled out this financial snapshot so far, we are at over 1.9 million in non-mortgage debt. Some of us have gotten ourselves pretty tangled and burdened by debt. We can also get tangled financially in exactly the opposite direction. Let's call it Scroogeism. Our hearts can become ensnared with obsessively counting and keeping our nickels. Marriages are literally ruined by that entanglement. So here's Jesus' observation. If our finances are tangled, it will be because our hearts are tangled by greed. It will be because money is our master. 
And if our hearts are tangled by greed, we will make very little progress in a Godward direction in any area of our lives. If our finances are tangled, it will be because our hearts are tangled by greed. And if our hearts are tangled by greed, we will make very little progress in God's direction in any area of our lives. Jesus begins his teaching with that command. It first stated it negatively and then positively, verses 19 and 20. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven. It's interesting to me that the appeal here is not a spiritual one. It's eminently practical. His appeal is based on comparative security and durability of the two treasures. Earthly treasure is vulnerable to decay and it's susceptible to loss, right? So, Rust, by the way, which I think is a better translation than vermin, rust happens when iron and its alloys are exposed to air and water. Air and water, the basic conditions of life. You cannot avoid rust unless you build a vacuum. Of course, Jesus didn't know anything about plastic, which is not vulnerable to rust. And if he hadn't known about plastic, Jesus is saying here might have been, don't store it for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, or things just deform and ugly themselves out of use. Because nothing on earth survives. It's impermanent by definition. Obviously, that's Jesus's point. Regardless of what it's made of, you cannot build a tight enough safe to protect your earthly stuff. You cannot simply protect against decay or loss or recession or change in appetites. I'm sure there are some of you here who are old enough who highly treasured that light blue neon leisure suit, but you no longer treasure it. So how is it that we end up spending enormous time storing up and worrying about our earthly treasure or trying to multiply our earthly treasure? How? They're vulnerable to natural decay. They're susceptible to loss. Why is so much of our time and energy invested in earthly investments? Now, Jesus never uses the word greed in this teaching, but it's the silent character in this drama. And it's very rare for a silent character to be the lead character, but it is here. It's almost always the case that when our hearts get tangled by finances, it's because of greed. Then he compares earthly treasure to heavenly treasure, which is invulnerable and not susceptible. It cannot be destroyed or stolen. It never goes out of style. Heavenly treasure is secure. So it just makes sense, Jesus is saying, store up where your investment will be the most secure. Spend your your time and your energy storing up where your investment will be secure. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't warn us against storing up? The way we sometimes think of Jesus, we could almost imagine him saying, don't spend your time storing anything up at all. You should just empty yourself completely. Don't think about storing up anything. You should be nothing. We sometimes imagine Jesus like some Buddhist monk spending his life on retreat on some hillside Rarely eating in threadbare rags, humming. I want nothing, I need nothing, I empty my mind of all things. But that's not Jesus' approach. Instead, Jesus encourages us to store up. We should just be smart about where we store. Here's the point. Jesus offers this command not because he's concerned about how we use or how we keep our money or how much money we make. Jesus offers this command not because he's concerned about how we use or how we keep our money or how much money we make. Jesus offers this command because he's concerned about the condition of our heart. 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I told the uh, uh, FPU folks, you know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and when I went to seminary, I had to learn some Greek, and I know a little bit. I know enough Greek to be dangerous, and I know enough Greek to use some of the tools that will tell you stuff about Greek language. And I, I thought several weeks ago, I knew I was going to do this, and I thought I would do a, a study of this because that fascinated me. And I thought, wow, what is the real meaning of that word treasure? What's the richness of it? So I brought my tools out, and I did some work, and I, I found out something fascinating. The best translation for that word treasure is treasure. Jesus is a pirate, and he's saying, wherever you have stored your booty, that's where your heart is. Jesus talked about money because money is a heart barometer. Money isn't just a resource issue, it's a heart issue. Money isn't just a resource issue, it's a heart issue. All right, how do we know if we're storing up treasure in heaven? What's the test for that? I want to offer some practical suggestions. I want you to think for for a minute about how you use your imagination. Earthly treasuring will involve imagining being young and more attractive and living forever. Heavenly treasuring will imagine God and having an immersive, fully aware experience of him. Now, if you're being honest, really honest right now, you're thinking, come on, Ed, nobody's that religious. I want to challenge that. I'll bet you many of you have had those days or weeks or months where you have said, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Now, that's not exactly the perfect way to approach him, but that's approaching him, and that's storing up treasure in heaven. We've also had those times where we've looked at our day and thought, I am incredibly blessed. Thank you, God. That is storing up treasure in heaven. I've had a number of you tell me, and thank you, it's blessed me too, and I've had emails about this current series we're going through and the conversation that we've been having. A couple of people have talked through what two weeks ago and then this past week, that's storing up treasure in heaven, thinking about what God would say to your week. Heavenly treasuring. Think about how you view other people. Earthly treasuring involves looking down on the poor. Earthly treasuring involves envying the rich. Heavenly treasuring involves respecting the poor, and it involves loving the rich. Think about how you deal with your possessions. Earthly treasuring involves worrying about your stuff and planning how to get more stuff. Heavenly treasuring involves being confident that God will provide and planning how to give more away. There are going to be three so what application points to give us our walking papers today. And application point number one is the takeaway for us is we've got to learn how to treasure heaven. We've got to learn what that means. I mean in the most practical sense. This year, let's learn how to treasure heaven. I got convicted about this a number of years ago, just my own personal struggles with my fear of death. And when I tend to doubt, I, this is one of the things I doubt. Is that real? So I read a really good book on heaven. I would encourage that. Grab a book on heaven. Read a book on heaven this year. Heaven this year. There are a couple of books that are really good and very readable on heaven. I'm also right now personally doing a Bible study on the book of Revelation, and it's one of the best personal Bible studies I've ever done. It's great. 
And it's got me thinking about eternal things. It's got me in heaven. And it's been awesome for me in my own spiritual life and in my own discipline in thinking heavenward. This has to do, of course, it relates to, to last weekend and disciplining our thoughts so that they're true and right and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. That's treasuring in heaven. Let's learn how to store up treasures in heaven this year. It's fascinating that Jesus follows up his command by giving an illustration that basically tells us how money exercises its power over us. How does this work that money becomes such a big deal in our lives? I think Jesus knows that we just don't get it. And the point of his illustration is that money exercises power over us by blinding us to the influence of greed. Money essentially blinds us to the influence of greed. Verses 22 and 23, he gives that illustration, eyes lamp of the body, if your eyes are healthy, whole body is full of light. And when I first glance at this, I read this illustration, I go, what has this got to do with anything? He doesn't fill in the gaps, but they become obvious if you think about it. The eyes are unhealthy. Your whole body will be full of darkness. If, if what's supposed to be light within you is actually darkness, wow, how dark is that going to be? Vision, and Jesus is teeing off on this, vision is the dominant means through which we interpret the world and interact with it. Ancient people knew that as well, but they didn't know it to the degree that we do. Now look, certainly blind people interact with their environment with amazing skill, but the illustration still holds. Brain scans have shown that for those of us who are sighted, 75% of our brain is involved in sight. A little less than 25% of our brain is involved with all the other senses. 75% of it is involved with sight. So if the eyes are good, Jesus' point, then we can interact with our surroundings appropriately. We can interact healthily. If the eyes are bad, then it's far more challenging. So Jesus' illustration builds on that truism. And I want you to listen to another pastor, a British pastor named John Stott, his explanation of this illustration is awesome. Allow me to read three paragraphs if I can. Stott says this, The argument seems to go like this, Just as our eyes affect our whole body, so our ambition, where we fix our eyes and heart, affects our whole life. Just as a seeing eye gives light to the body, so a noble and single-minded ambition to serve God and man adds meaning to life and throws light on everything we do. Again, just as blindness leads to darkness, so ignoble and selfish ambition, e.g. to lay up treasure for ourselves on earth, plunges us into moral darkness. It makes us intolerant, inhuman, ruthless, and deprives life of all ultimate significance. It's all a question of vision, Stott goes on. If we have physical vision, we can see what we are doing and where we are going. So too, if we have spiritual vision... If our spiritual perspective is correctly adjusted, then our life is filled with purpose and drive. But if our vision, our spiritual vision, becomes clouded, let's use our word, tangled. If our spiritual vision becomes clouded, if it becomes tangled by the false gods of materialism, and we lose our sense of values, then our whole life is in darkness. And we cannot see where we are going. Perhaps the emphasis lies even more strongly than I have suggested so far on the loss of vision caused by greed. Because according to biblical thought, an evil eye is a miserly spirit and a sound one is generous. In other words, Jesus is suggesting that greed blinds us. It clouds our treasuring instinct. Greed clouds our treasuring instinct. Greed tangles up our hearts 
tangles up our treasuring instinct, an instinct given to us by God, it clouds that. It causes us to invest in things that are impermanent and susceptible and to ignore investments that are secure and lasting, and it affects everything in our lives. Specifically, Jesus is suggesting that money or the stuff that money represents activates this blinding or this entangling process. Listen, I can't ever remember a time when someone came to confess to me about the the sin of greed. I don't ever remember a single time. I don't remember confessing that myself to anyone else. We don't think we have a problem with greed, but the rest of the world might disagree. I imagine some of you who are newer to U.S. culture might disagree about our relationship to greed, but we don't see it. Just think about the abundance that surrounds us here, and think about how we think about that abundance. How we just assume it. What does that say about us? When we become blinded by greed, then everything we do is entangled. Everything in our life suffers. Plus, don't sleep on this, greed is different from other sins. That's why Jesus calls it an eye sin. He's warning us about the blinding effects of it. Look, we know when we're lying. We know when we're committing adultery. We even know when we're gossiping, but but greed hides itself from us. We don't see it. And the light of discernment goes out and darkens our ability then to discern in other areas of our lives. If our hearts are tangled by greed, we make very little Godward progress in any area of our lives. Jesus is giving us a profound warning here. Now, he doesn't really address the solution. He usually does, but he doesn't here. I think some of that is he's leaving it to us, but I think we need to at least ask and nod our hats this morning. How do we battle this? If greed blinds us and entangles our whole lives, how do we battle it? That's a conversation for another day, but I think we we at least need to say the key might be that we don't battle it alone. Hebrews 3.13 says this, but encourage one another as long as it's called today. That's pretty much every day. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Evidently, when left to our own devices, we have a difficult time avoiding sin's deception. We need help to see clearly. We need to find some ways of holding ourselves accountable in this area. But frankly, that's not easy. Now, couples can often do this for one another, but sometimes that doesn't work. So what's the walkaway point? What's the application? So what? I think you and I need to find this year some means of creating accountability for ourselves in the area of finances. Literally. We need to find some way of holding ourselves accountable for finances. There needs to be someone in our lives who says, do you need to take out that $8,000 car loan to buy a Lexus? When, When you drive it off the lot, you've lost 20% already. You think you could buy an eight-year-old Civic instead? And instead of making a $600 car payment, and we learned in FPU that the average American, average American, pays $515 a month for their car. Instead of making that $600 car payment, how about if you pay that $600 to yourself every month? We need someone in our life who can say, 
Do you need to build the deck this year? I know your neighbor got one and it's awesome. But do you need that this year? Can you save for it until you have the cash before you build it? We need that in our lives. I know it's uncomfortable, but we need it. We need someone in our lives saying, how much are you giving away? It's kind of the point of the whole exercise, to give away. We need to find some means of creating accountability for ourselves and our finances. That's a difficult concept for Americans. We get really quiet when we start to talk about that. Why is that so difficult for us? I suggest it may relate to where our heart is. Jesus isn't finished yet. He wants us to see what's really at stake here. This is not a small thing. He wants us to see how much power our finances exercise over our lives. Basically, our finances exercise such power over us because money is a false god. Again, greed is qualitatively different from other sin because it assumes mastery over our lives. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's tease that for a second to make sure we feel in our chest the impact of Jesus' words. That word master, I want to give you this one. That translates the Greek word kurios, and I mention it because this is a very important and very expansive word. Aside from the fact that Jesus is often called kurios, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, when it was translated into Greek, this word kurios translated seven different Hebrew words. So it's used over and over again, and those words include master, ruler, lord, sovereign, head. You get the idea. This is a big word. This is why Paul, later in the New Testament, one of his letters, he would equate greed with idolatry. Our finances place themselves in direct competition with God for the devotion of our hearts. Money and the things money can buy always require that we serve them wholeheartedly. Money isn't satisfied to be a priority in our lives. It wants to become our master. I love the contrast that Tim Keller offered. He said this, Every treasure will insist that you die to purchase it. Jesus alone is the treasure that dies to purchase you. Ultimately, money requires that we give up everything else in pursuit of it. Here's how this works. For some of us, our finances become our guide by becoming the thing that gives us significance. So we just feel a lot better. We feel more purposeful. Some of us feel more alive when we're driving the Lexus instead of the eight-year-old Civic. When we're flying in first class instead of coach. If we have enough money, we feel like we are approved. It ensures our approval. We believe the right lifestyle and the right accoutrements are the key to happiness and satisfaction. Deep down inside. For others of us, it's different. For others of us, the mechanism works differently. Finances will become our God by giving us a sense of security. If we have enough money, we feel like we are in control. 
We feel like we're doing our job for our family, for ourselves, if our finances are set. So what? What's the application here? We have to untangle our finances. This means resisting the demand that money places on our lives. We cannot devote ourselves to money. I don't know what the exact application is for you, but I suspect for all of us, it involves generosity. Breaking free of this entanglement will involve expanding our generosity footprint. We need to enlarge our generosity footprint this year. I want to be honest. I believe one application for us is to begin by giving in a disciplined way to the church here. For others of us, we should think and pray about how to expand our generosity you already give here, maybe other places, but still expanding. I'm going to be very frank this morning. There are some of us who, those of you who are connected to Gateway, you give online, and we have that capacity here at Gateway. MyGateway.life, there's a giving tab that will help you with that. Many of you do. For those of you who don't and who are regularly connecting to Gateway, every Sunday at the end of the service, we pass an offering basket. Now everybody's going to feel guilty when it comes by. Please don't. But we pass an offering basket and we give. I'm going to speak frankly. Where we live, kind of income that we make, when our habit is to take out our wallet, throw in a five every other week, we're not giving. That is not generous. That's, that's guilt or that's tokenism. We need to go home this afternoon and look at our pocketbook and look at our, does anybody say pocketbook anymore? Look at our checkbook and figure out what God wants us to give and where. What God wants us to give and then grow there. I knew a man years ago who became an inspiration for me. Having said that, Diane and I have never accomplished this, but always tried to give faithfully. But this guy said he was, that was a young guy, and he was about my age now, so I thought he was ancient, decrepit, in fact. But he was talking about money. I was in a church service. He was talking about money one Sunday, and he said, my wife and I years ago decided that we were going to try to do uh, the biblical model, and so we, there's a lot of talk in the Bible about a tithe. And the word tithe literally, some of you know this, it talks about a tithe in the Old Testament especially, and it's mentioned in the New Testament. And a tithe is literally a tenth. So you know, we took our income and we divided it by ten and we decided that we were going to try to grow to the point that we could give all of that, the whole tenth. And then we got there and we realized that Jesus said a lot more than that. You know, it wasn't about a tenth. In fact, even in the Old Testament, if you count up all the tithes and offerings and sacrifices that they gave annually and sacrifices every time they sinned, most Old Testament scholars will suggest that they were, in effect, giving 25% of their income. And so he said, my wife and I decided that we were just going to prayerfully try to increase that percentage, not just the amount, but the percentage every year. So we haven't made it every year, but right now we're at 22%. He was a pastor. He didn't make a lot of money. We're not at 22%. We do try to give faithfully. The so what application is we've got to expand our generosity footprint. Now look, those of you who give to, thank, to Gateway, thank you. Honestly, thank you so much. Thank you. Diane and I eat because of that. We sent our children to college because of you and your generosity. Thank you. The lights are on here because of that. Thank you. But the so what application for us is greed is so dangerous and it's so deadly and it's so blinding. 
We have to be planning against it. We have to think constantly, how do we expand our generosity footprint? This year, let's take some practical steps in learning how to treasure heaven. How do we do that? Let's build some accountability for ourselves in the area of finances, secondly. And thirdly, let's expand our generosity footprint this year. Let's give more away. Okay, let's wrap this up. In, in the first three centuries after Jesus' death, the Jesus movement experienced explosive growth. You may know this. I, I was going to put a, a graph up for you this morning, but it's too detailed and too much information. But the, the church just blew up. And the Jesus movement just went crazy in the first three centuries. So just let me give you a snapshot. About 100 A.D., so this is you know, roughly 30 years after Jesus, the Roman Empire, the population of the Roman Empire was about 60 million. There were 10,000 Christians. Remember, it started with 12. So by 100 A.D., there were 10,000 Christians. But that was one hundredth of 1% of the Roman Empire. By 300 A.D., 200 years later, there were still about 60 million people in the Roman Empire. There were 10 million Christians. How? They had no access to social media. They had no influence at all on public policy. They were, there were massive language barriers. They experienced harsh economic conditions, sometimes because they were Christians. And throughout the whole period, they experienced intermittent persecution, sometimes aggressive persecution in which they were put to death. And yet, it exploded throughout the Middle East, all the way across northern Africa, across Asia, all the way to the Indian subcontinent, and covered in the entire span of what we call modern-day Europe. I believe the early church was so successful in large part because greed was not an issue for them. Don't miss this next sentence. Their Christian devotion was never threatened by comfort, abundance, or ease. Those things are a threat. And their Christian experience was never threatened by comfort, abundance, and ease. God does not want us to feel guilty about our comfort, our abundance, and ease. He's blessed us. He has blessed us for a purpose. There are things for us to do. We're not blessed so that we can sit and be comfortable and get an even larger television to take full advantage of all of our array of entertainment options. There's a second century letter from a Christian named Diognetus. He said this, quote, We Christians share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all, end quote. In other words, his point was, pagans are promiscuous with their body and stingy with their money. Christians are stingy with their body and promiscuous with their money. And because of this, they won the world. The army without the swords won. We've got somewhere to go this year, and we are not going to get there unless we untangle our finances. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you have spoken and your servants are listening. We pray for, oh Lord, we pray for help. Jesus, there is such a spirit of blindness 
that blankets our lives, our hearts, it blinds us. And we sometimes fail in our efforts Godward to be more like you as a, a neighbor or as a boyfriend or as a parent or as a worker. We keep failing and we don't know why. And sometimes it's because our heart is in the grip of a blindness caused by greed. We don't even see it. It is the cultural soup that we're cooked in. I ask in Jesus' name that you would give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to steal from, uh, Dave Ramsey is the guy who has uh, done the FPU exercise, and at the end of each of his teaching videos, he pauses for one minute to allow us to think what the application point is for us. And I, I just believe that God has spoken to many of us today, so I'm going to give you one minute to think about what the walkaway point is for you. And I want you to make mental note, maybe phone note, maybe physical note, what your takeaway is from today. So you have got one minute, and I want you to think about what your takeaway is from today. This doesn't make any difference in our lives unless it makes a difference in our lives. So may the Lord bless to us this hearing of his word.